Thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly with you in studio Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll hear how Israeli settlements benefited from offshore accounts in tax havens and why the government of the British Virgin Islands came to own assets in East Jerusalem. But before that... Hello, Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Hi, Amir. Great to have you here with us. It's always great to be here. And last week, you wrote a fascinating story for us about the Trump administration reunion in Jerusalem. It's not as good, maybe, as some reunions we've seen in recent years, Friends, Seinfeld, and other shows. <laughs> But for those who were there last night in Jerusalem, it was a big deal. What was it all about? Why did they all get together in Jerusalem for a... One round of fun again. So David Friedman, who was uh, Donald Trump's ambassador uh, in Israel, did what his predecessor did, uh, Dan Shapiro, who was Obama's ambassador in Israel, and kind of decided that why go back to the United States if it's being, you know, run by the, uh, opposite, the, party. the, the opposite party? It's no fun. You know, you're not an insider anymore. You know, um, Shapiro was looking at uh, the Trump administration and Friedman's looking at the Biden administration. And why not stay in Israel where you're acknowledged and a appreciate it and you can really you know continue to be very high profile and have everyone listen to what you have to say so Friedman he pre-owned an apartment in Israel even so he just stayed yeah he just stayed he but, stuck around but, but he took it one step further than Mr. Shapiro by opening this new what is it a center an institute it's the Friedman Center for peace through strength and big name yeah and if you're a politics geek you know that peace through strength was a big uh, Ronald Reagan uh, saying so it sort of has a Republican GOP uh, tint from the beginning yeah so he's you know he's got his side gigs he's uh, he's publishing a book that's coming out in February called sledgehammer mm-hmm. um, which sounds you know very it reminds exciting. us of the scene where he was taking a hammer and breaking these uh, walls underneath the was it the old city in Jerusalem exactly right? exactly quite quite a sight and so last week they celebrated the opening the launch of this center and you were there to cover it for us uh, in your article you wrote that it was a bit like traveling back in time why it was total early 2019 before uh, before the pandemic hit in 2020 it was a full gala with you know buffets people mingling no masks literally rubbing shoulders there was a, a band playing the girl from Ipanema there mm. wasn't exactly dancing but you know there was a lot of uh, uh, political and, dancing. and also some familiar faces from the past uh, very familiar so there was a uh, former Treasury secretary Steven Mnuchin who is now David Friedman's boss and there was a uh, former secretary of of State uh, Mike Pompeo who looked slim trim and ready to go he was the keynote speaker he was getting the first piece through through strength award which uh, which David Friedman was awarding the big um, celebrities in the first cocktail hour were uh, Ivanka Trump and uh, Jared Kushner that's who everyone wanted the selfie with and there were a few other random uh, celebrities the president of FIFA the International Soccer Association and randomly Peyton Manning the star quarterback from the United States so it was uh, it was a CNB scene event. An eclectic evening. Let's hear a soundbite from Pompeo's speech at that event. I'm confident that the people in these countries, no matter what administration there is in the United States, understand that these outcomes are good for them. That they isolate the bad guys, like the people who only want freedom in Iran, but have a tyrannical regime ruling over them. One day, too, they will have the opportunity 
to become a peace-loving nation as well. Thank you all so much. Ellison, it sounds like someone maybe is launching a presidential run from Jerusalem. Uh, maybe. The, the only maybe about it is whether or not Donald Trump decides to run for president in 2024. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. There are, though, rumors on the Internet that Pompeo may even be determined enough to run that he could primary uh, Donald Trump, which would certainly be an interesting situation. Mm-hmm. But he was definitely, you know, on a, on a, on a presidential uh, campaign, which, uh, you know, he started, I think, even before he finished being Secretary of State. Good point. Um, and I want to hear another interesting uh, a moment from that evening when David Friedman introduces the guests, including one who happened to be late. Secretary Mike Pompeo, your incredible wife Susan, Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, uh, we're going to welcome soon, I believe he's a little bit held up, but uh, I'll welcome him anyway, some people can at least mention to him that I welcome him when he arrives, <laughs> former Prime Minister and uh, Leader of the Opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu. How politically uh, Likud slash Republican friendly did this event uh, feel to you? Well, at least one pundit said that it looked like a shadow government because you had <laughs> all of the... <laughs> of what country? <laughs> right, exactly. Of both countries, frankly, because you had um, all of these, you know, former Trump administration officials and you had a uh, array of Israeli guests who were all from the right, you know, political consultants and heads of NGOs, etc. And politicians from the right, but almost all of them from the pro-Netanyahu right, the only exception who was, you know, directly associated with the uh, current Bennett government that I could spot was Ayelet Shaked. Who herself is uh, considered the weakest link in the Bennett government, let's put it politely. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, Yair Netanyahu was there, of course, uh, even Uh before mom and dad showed up. Of course. Um, There are also some differences that you highlighted in your article between this initiative by former Ambassador Friedman and another initiative focused on the Abraham Accords and the Peace with the Arab World led by Jared Kushner. Right. They both have their institute. There's an institute for the promotion of the uh, Abraham Accords led by Kushner, uh, uh, which is mostly based in Washington, D.C. And uh, then there's this enterprise, Peace Through Strength by Friedman. I asked Friedman in our interview, you know, what's the difference between these two groups? And he called his organization more touchy-feely than Jared Kushner's. He said his is about bringing Muslims to Israel and bringing tourism and showing them how well Israel takes care of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And he says one Once the Muslim world understands by coming and seeing for themselves how well Israel is in fact taking care of Muslim holy places, that that will greatly reduce the level of resentment and antagonism among Muslims. Now, the event itself, apart from unveiling his institution, was also an opportunity for Friedman to showcase a new documentary film that he's been working on. What is that about? Yes, David Friedman has gone Hollywood. He is a co-producer of uh, this film about the birth of the Abraham Accords. Uh, he's co-produced it with the Trinity Broadcasting Network. That's like an evangelical Christian network. Absolutely. And he's very upfront. They completely footed the bill. You know, his producer credit was, you know, he worked on it. He's the narrator. He interviews all of the people speaking on it. And uh, as a producer, you know, he got, did a good job because he got everybody. He got everybody from... 
from uh, Pompeo to Kushner to Donald Trump himself to all of the officials from the Abraham Accords countries, and they all sort of uh, sat down with him, and uh, and he was able to lay out its uh, origin and, story. And it has a very religious element to it, right? Yes. Well, I mean, you watched the film, so you can tell us. Well, I watched, it's a five-episode um, five documentary, and uh, what he presented at this event was a 38-minute condensed version of it. And um, uh, Director's version, as you call it. Yeah, and listen, it's very much in the style of these Christian networks, you know, lots of very um, imposing uh, symphony music, very dramatic. Uh, it opens and uh, ends, at least this condensed version did, um, with showing Abraham in front of his table Hent, warming his hands by the fire and the story of Vitzrak uh, and Ishmael and how they're going to come together and you know making all the all the parallels so it's very Hollywood and uh, and dramatic and it ends at least this version did with uh, Donald Trump and David Friedman you know congratulating each other on how they changed the world and did such a magnificent thing well, happy ending for uh, the viewers I want to hear another short excerpt from uh, Friedman's speech at the event which also highlights the religious nature of the conversation. Swords will be beaten into plowshares, and nations shall no longer lift up sword against nation. He also explains how he sees that vision occurring. All the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem, where God will resolve their differences. The road to peace goes through Jerusalem, says the prophet Isaiah. Indeed, the name Jerusalem itself means city of peace. The Freedman Center will work to actualize Isaiah's vision and to help make Jerusalem worthy of its name. Now, Alison, you also interviewed Ambassador Friedman, which was an interesting event because uh, when he was in office, he actually said that Haaretz has no decency. But maybe now we have enough decency to talk to him. And in the interview, he said that he believes if Trump had won the election last year, there would already be now peace with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, he said absolutely. He said Saudi Arabia would be on board at this point if Trump had been reelected in office. You know, sort of sounding a theme. He didn't wasn't shy about it, that many on the Republican side have been portraying the Biden administration of dragging their feet and not doing anything in order to advance the uh, the Abraham Accords and being even reluctant. to call them the Abraham Accords, calling them instead general normalization and generally um, saying that they've been uh, been neglecting this and uh, you know it's part of their failed foreign policy as compared to Trump's although, foreign policy. Although we did see last week Blinken hosting Lapid and the foreign minister of the UAE, so maybe we are seeing a change around that in Washington. And uh, I was interested, you know, because he said had Trump been re-elected, uh, there would have been peace. What did he say about the concept in general that Biden won the election? Um, well, he said that Uh, he has seen anecdotal evidence that uh, there were irregularities in the in the election but not enough evidence to show that it would have changed the results of the election so he you know he didn't go as far as to repudiate um, the the Trump uh, theory that you know this election was stolen for him but he didn't exactly back it up either uh, well maybe in the Trump circles that is a diplomatic answer <laughs> Ellison thank you so much for being with us and I encourage our listeners if you haven't read Ellison's great article from last week Uh, you can find it on arts.com our guest today is Uri Blau Uri is a member of ICIJ the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists a network of reporters from all over the world whose most recent bombshell publication was the Pandora Papers a years-long investigation that unlocked the financial secrets of politicians billionaires and the global elite 
Uri, great to have you on the show. Happy to be here. So most of our listeners have probably heard by now about the Pandora Papers and seen some of the dramatic headlines that came out of this investigation. For example, the stories about King Abdallah's mansions around the world. But I'm not sure how many of them understand what is the organization behind this journalistic achievement. Can you tell us in a few words about ICIJ? Yes, of course. ICIJ is a U.S.-based nonprofit. Their headquarters are sitting in Washington, D.C., but they have journalists and offices in various parts of the world. It was established in 1997 as a pioneering organization. Uh, nonprofit journalism didn't really exist uh, back then. And uh, speaking of the Pandora Papers, so you, as part of the independent Israeli news website Shomrim, had the journalistic pleasure of pouring over those documents to look for the secrets of Israel's political and business elite. Can you share with our listeners the work process before we dive into the very interesting stories that you find out? Uh, basically, one day you're told that there's a new database of information about the world's most rich and powerful. And then what happens? I wouldn't necessarily call it pleasure. It's a, <laughs> it, it's a complicated, sometimes painful, definitely lengthy uh, walk. So yeah, I mean, I've been in touch with ICIJ for over six years now. Um, and that is, I guess, the fifth investigations that I've conducted with them, starting with the Luxembourg leaks in, I think, 2014, Panama Papers, and leading up to, to Pandora Papers. So yes, there is always some sort of excitement when you get that phone call, like we have a new project coming. But by now, I also know that it's not that simple. It's not like you're typing Benjamin Netanyahu when a file on Benjamin Netanyahu comes up with whatever you think he might have. The way that, that ICIJ works and, and Pandora Papers and, and other leaks in, in that magnitude, basically ICIJ operates two sets of platforms. One is an internal search platform, Google-like, in which you can, you know, type anything you want, name, an address, name of a company, anything really. And then you see what and comes up and, and you hope that you find out information about the person or a company or something related to, to your field of interest. Exactly. And the other platform is more Facebook-like, in which the journalists are um, building the collaboration between them sharing the information and and you connect you know, the dots find... together that way exactly exactly but i think the listeners would be interesting in understanding let's take a particular example you write the name of an uh, israeli politician your bakat for example so yeah, for, former mayor of jerusalem who we're going to talk about later quite a lot correct When you type his name, when you type Nirbakat name, you got almost 200 results within this lake that contains, you know, 12, 12 million documents. But those 200 results, so first you have to read them one by one. Some of them would be duplications. Other would be things that doesn't make much sense without much greater context. Mm-hmm. So I think what the listeners need to understand is that it's not you're writing a name and you get a report on a particular person. You have to person. start going over document by document and filter out the interesting information from those 200 uh, results that you get. Exactly. And you most typically would have to go out of the documents and into the real world or other documents. The, the real like Google, that. first of all, maybe. The real Google... But also other places, Nimbal Kat presents a good example for that because 
the investigation that we developed around these holdings in a British Virgin Island company was made possible only or became fruitful when we went to Israel. We pulled up the company file of these Israeli companies. Just to, just, so just, to, to connect. just to put our yeah. listeners all on the same page, Nir Barkat, not only the former mayor for Jerusalem and today a Likud member of Knesset, but also, I think, the richest politician in Israel today and someone who views himself as a potential prime minister one day, wants to inherit the Likud leadership from Netanyahu. And you found very interesting information about his companies and where they put the money. Correct. Basically, Barkat, who was the mayor of Jerusalem, um, repeatedly say that when he entered the public life, he has quit all his, uh, all his business. And he's focusing on, you know, doing good for the people of Israel. What those documents reveal is that in 2016, long after Barkat entered uh, politics, uh, letters on his behalf were sent to one of the service providers, Trident, Uh, regarding Barkat's direct and indirect holdings at the BVI entity, British Virgin Island entity. So we are talking about a letter from Barkat's bank, uh, describing him as a businessman, a letter from his lawyer, again, describing him as a businessman. So you see that the separation between Barkat and his business is... Definitely not as complete as he presented it. And, and what's interesting okay. specifically about uh, the British Virgin Islands being the country where these letters are sent to? So British Virgin Island is uh, also like a quite essential name for, for an offshore, uh, for a tax haven country, right? A place in which you can open a company. They have no corporate tax. So whatever you gain there, you don't have to pay, you know, the over 20% that you do, for example, in Israel. But those places also offer a lot of secrecy. Again, the listeners might not know, but in Israel, when you open a company, you register a company, you have to register yourself as the, as the one that owns the company, a stockholder. Mm-hmm. In the British Virgin Island, it doesn't work like this. Many times, with, I mean, not many times, but basically without such leaks as the Pandora Papers, you don't know who is, the official term is, ultimate beneficiary owner. So there's, the so there's a reason why... The company. There's a reason yes. why so many companies decide to operate over there, not just because of the tax... Uh, huge tax break, let's call it like that politely, but also because of the secrecy. Um, another fascinating story that uh, emerged from your investigation, um, and this one had an incredible title. Uh, I'm just going to read it at full for our listeners to enjoy. How Settler Properties in East Jerusalem Fell into the Hands of the Virgin Islands Government. Please elaborate, because at first this sounds a bit like an article in The Onion. Yeah, I mean, the reality in Israel is, uh, is, is, is as such, right? Sometimes, <laughs> Sometimes um, it is. Indeed, it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. I'm not sure how, how much the listeners are familiar with that, but many times when settler organizations are purchasing land or property um, from Palestinians in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem, these practices are done via offshore entities. And just like what we mentioned before, this is done a lot of the times in order to provide secrecy. Mm-hmm. Secrecy for many times for the sellers themselves who are Palestinians who do not want to be identified 
want to receive the money in a way that would maintain their safety because the Palestinian authorities, I mean, it's, it's not a popular act to sell property to, to settlers, obviously. I've reported on such practices for many years. By the way, it's not only buying property. Many times the donations to uh, settlement groups are coming via those kind of companies. Again, providing secrecy to the donor. Mm-hmm. Because again, sometimes reputational, uh, reputationally donating to a settler group can, can damage a, a person, right? So, it's, uh, so, if you, so some people would rather do that through an account in the Virgin Islands than out in the open. Exactly. So I'm going back to your first question for a second. The way uh, in which you can search the data, you, I can basically search at once a big number of either names or entities. And I've put into the data an Excel sheet in which I've, uh, which I, I, I compiled based on information I already knew, uh, which contained dozens and dozens of offshore entities related to the settlement enterprise. So those would be either companies that donated to settlement or companies that purchased land or property in settlement. And I came up with many results within the league. Uh, which allowed me to see that those companies actually exist in the, in, in the league. And diving in, I found out that companies that hold property in East Jerusalem mainly related to a group called the Teret Koanim. Aaret has covered at length over the years. They are responsible for many of these purchases, um, some of them uh, with all kinds of questions around them uh, in East Jerusalem and close to the old city. Correct. So... The data from, from Pandora Papers basically opened the curtain into that world. And one of the most interesting things that uh, I found is that some of those companies were stroke off. That happened because for a very uh, ban- banalic reason, I would say, the, the settlers just didn't pay. To the, the government of the British Virgin Islands. Exactly. The, like Something if you open so a company simple. there, if you open a company there, you get the you know the no tax benefit and you get the secrecy, but you still have to pay some kind of tax to that uh, country's local government in order to keep the company registered. Exactly, just like an annual fee. Eventually, the companies uh, stroke off, so they were erased from the British Virgin Island registry, and according to the BVI law. Um, property or assets of, of such companies that are being erased or strike, stroke off uh, moves to the hands of the British Virgin Island government. Um, so this was the case. I mean, some of those companies held property in East Jerusalem. They, stro- they, they were striked off. Um, they had property. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the URA the property, the assets, moved to the British Virgin Island government. Now, it's interesting because the, 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 those settlers group only found out about that years after the effect. And in one case in particular, the documents include petition to the British Virgin Island Supreme Court in order to restore those companies. And that exactly is why they are doing this. They explain within those internal communication that they have to restore those companies mm-hmm. because the company holds assets in you know a particular street in East Jerusalem, and you cannot own property if you do not exist. 
So, and was the British Virgin Islands government aware of this phenomenon that they now hold assets that I assume are worth quite a lot of money in one of the most sensitive areas in the world? So, we do not know. The truth is that we just don't know. I don't know if they would be happy or unhappy to, to you know, step <laughs> to, on that to, mind. To get involved in this. Yes, exactly. But it is fascinating because some of those companies were dealing with, with some of the most contagious deals that the region have seen in the last 20, over 20 years. And we don't know. The, the truth is we still don't know whether some companies that own property on paper are actually actually do not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were initially disappointed that there was nothing in the documents about Israel's most senior political leadership. You know, you mentioned uh, Netanyahu. Uh, but you did find interesting information about a man who was very close to people like Netanyahu and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, and is also involved in one of Netanyahu's corruption cases, uh, Hollywood producer Arnon Milchen. Let me first address the first part of your question, Amir. It's not, I want to make clear, it's not I was disappointed that Mr. Netanyahu did not appear in the documents. But basically, there is a, a certain level of excitement when you are first exposed to those kind of leaks. And you are hoping to find, you know, the most significant names in, in the news or politics or of business. Course, of course. And that's not, that's not always the case. And with time, you, le- you learn to understand that. Just want to make this clear. And yes, indeed, we, one of the Israelis, Israeli citizens in, in the documents, is Arnon Milchan, the very famous film producer known for Pretty Woman, 12 Years of Slaves, and also probably he's less happy to be known as, uh, in, as, as a key figure in uh, the corruption case filed against uh, former Prime Minister well, Netanyahu. Although that one could also make a great movie one day. This indeed can great, make a great movie, yes. Um, what those documents show us is that um, Mr. Milchen holds assets, mainly art, um, but not only, also property, uh, also real estate property, um, via BVI companies, again, in the total sum of almost half a billion dollars. Half a billion dollars in the British Virgin Island. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, yes. Make you think about, you know, the cigars and the champagne. In, uh, <laughs> that he sent it gave you some perspective yeah. about how much money he paid for those. That was small money compared to, to what he holds over there. Uh, in general, exactly. how, how, how well is Israel, let's say, represented in this league? Per capita, are we among the more uh, prominent countries uh, to appear in the documents? Yes, Israel is highly represented in, in the league. There are more than... 560 Israelis as, uh, appear at least as ultimate beneficiary owners of companies. In the US, a country with population of what, 30 times more, even more, they have only 600 uh, wow. or 600 or so such people. Wow. Are, I, are, are I, we, are we number one per capita? I don't, I don't know, to be honest, but I would not, uh, I would not jump into conclusion based on that. Mm-hmm. You have to remember, it's a leak, and in a sense, it's it's very random, right? You got the information from fourteen service provider of you know offshore entities, but 
maybe if we were to get that link from different providers, Israel would be less present or more present. Mm-hmm. So it, it is random. I, mean, I don't think we can uh, we can conclude that Israelis mm-hmm. use offshore tax haven more than other nationalities because mm-hmm. of that particular it, it, link. It, it, it's just that in the spirit of the Olympics and the great achievements we had, I was hoping we got one more gold medal. Uh, Uri, looking more broadly, what does this project tell us about the future of investigative journalism? You know, we grew up watching all the president's men where you have these two hungry reporters working under a legendary editor with a cigarette, always concerned about beating the competition, in their case, the New York Times. Uh, but uh, ICIJ, the organization that uh, produced this uh, mega leak and that you belong to, uh, offers a very different model. Yeah, although journalists are still hungry today, right? Um, I, I, we hope. I think there are a few things here. The world has changed. I mean, when I... I when I started um, my career in journalism, maybe it says something about my age, but it was pretty much like what you described. I worked in a Jerusalem weekly call a year, everybody smoked, drank black coffee, and that was the way things operated. But this is really a surface level, right? It's like almost a superficial thing. I mean, I remember going into AP offices in New York just a couple of years ago, and the place was quiet, like a public library, sort of quiet, and it shocked me by how different it is. But again, it's just a different era, right? So I I, I would say that this part is is almost superficial. I think there are a few um, core points that we want to think about that um, coming up from your question. First, media outlets today have less money to operate. Um, and I think we can see that when they join forces, they are stronger and more efficient. But we are also living in a different era in terms of the information that we hold, the mass data. So when all the president's men, when, when, you know, when people, let's talk about uh, Daniel Asberg at the Pentagon Papers. Daniel Asberg had to uh, zero you know, 7,000 documents. We're talking about 12 million documents. We are living in an era of mass information and the leaks are different than they used to be in the 70s. And no one person or no no one outlet can deal with that incredible amount of data by themselves. And if they try, we would just actually, we would lose the opportunity of using this information. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you try to Xerox 12 million documents and then publish them at full, because at the end the Pentagon Papers were published at full, you would probably just go bankrupt in the process. Yeah, and and you it, and it's not only about that. Nobody would be able to read it yes. and to analyze it. And we are talking about global, uh, global issues and cases. But I, 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 I do want to say one more thing, a couple more things about, about that point, because I think it is a fascinating issue to, to discuss. In Israel, with Shomri, the group I'm working, we, we, we took one step further than collaborating on this, right? Because when, typically, when you think about journalism, in particular publication or outlet, they're always talking about exclusivity. You, you want to beat the competition. That's number one. Exactly. But I think what we showed here is that um, we, we challenged that assumption. Um, so not only that you work with outlets or publication platforms across border, so there's, I guess, less competition, 
But what we did in Israel was almost groundbreaking on the international level because we gave the information to all the outlets at once. Now think about it. Today, the way that people consume information is very partisan in essence, right? We are living in this era in which everybody is just... You, you, watch, you watch Fox News or you watch MSNBC in the American example, and there are equivalences everywhere. Exactly. So in Israel, it's either you are reading Haaretz or Israel Ayom, or you are listening to an ultra-orthodox radio station or to, I don't know, the Tel Aviv-based one. What we've managed to do, and it's very hard to break those boundaries. It's very hard for persons that consume information in one outlet to receive information that is usually coming from a different one. And I think we managed to break those walls, which is something I, I'm, I'm very happy with because it's not obvious at all in today's media landscape. But all that to say that I still think there is, I, I, I don't think, I'm sure there is space for both that sort of journalism, but also the ground reporting. I mean, those, you know, the old president, old president's man um, mode of journalism, it's not only that it's valid, it's, it's necessary. And I think you, and I mentioned it earlier, you have to go out of the league and into the real world in order to, uh, to produce great journalism. And those, modes of journalism complement each other they are not mutually exclusive that's a fascinating point Uri thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and for your great reporting on these papers thank you for having me Amir and uh, that's it for us today um, thank you to our producer Aaron Ehrlich thank you to you listeners for being with us we'll be back again on Friday with Arts Weekend and until our next meeting Shalom from Tel Aviv <laughs>